0: Hi, I'm Sanjoy, back again. In our previous podcast, Davinia had given us an overall idea of crowdfunding. In the next 30 minutes, we will talk about not only how this new trend affects local entrepreneurs, but also incubators. We will also talk about how foundations can support this new development. Davinia, let's talk a little bit about crowd lending because obviously that's a big one out there. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, tenure, interest rate, currency, you know, how does a company raise money and what type of money does it raise on these platforms?
1: Yeah, so you really have your your two, I guess, um, you know, archetypes when it comes to the platforms. So you have the platforms Charm Impact um, and then Kiva's, what they call the direct lending initiative. And so those two platforms provide ten to fifty thousand dollar loans and kiva is the one that has no or low interest um, charm they their interest rates i think are typically sort of eight most of the platforms the, the interest rates are somewhere between eight percent per annum um, and about 12 percent kiva does usd denominated loans whereas charm um, does sterling denominated loans As far as tenure goes, it really depends. Um, You know, it would be matched to um, if the company, for example, is providing asset financing to their customers, then that tenure would typically be matched to that. What I often see is about 36 months seems to be sort of the average. Um, I think the shortest I've seen it is probably 12 months. And then for mini grids that can go up to about seven years. Um, so there is really a wide range depending on the company model. Um, and then obviously the, where the company is in the li- in their life cycle, you know, are they super early stage and just need like $10,000, $20,000 or are they you know, in the growth phase where they need $500,000 plus?
0: Well, three years to seven years sounds really encouraging because that's the type of money that you would get uh, from institutional investors. In fact, many, for many institutional investors, uh, three years and seven years is very risky. So you know, if you're getting that type of money on crowdfunding platforms, that's very encouraging. But I've also heard of a thing like a company has a campaign and then does multiple transactions within the campaign. Have you seen anything like that?
1: Yeah. So there is a bit of a difference between, I guess, what the investor or the user sees on a crowdfunding platform and what goes on behind the scenes. So often a campaign will only be, um, I'd say the average is probably like two hundred dollars or $250,000. But many of the platforms, particularly those ones that are doing the much larger loans, they will approve. Um, so the transaction will be approved, but that transaction might be, like you say, you know, it could include four, five, six different campaigns. Um, and the advantage of that for borrowers is that you know, often when you get a facility, say, like through a DFI or an impact investor. You have to draw down, let's say, your one million dollars immediately, and then you start paying interest on that. For with crowd lending, if you, you know, just need say two hundred thousand dollars now, and then you need four hundred thousand dollars in four months, and, you know, then you can just kind of you can stagger your campaigns to match your funding needs and reduce the effective. Cost of capital because it's so flexible. At the same time, platforms, you know, they it needs to make sense for them. So often they will have um, certain, you know, restrictions like you have to raise at least 600 or 700,000 US dollars on a platform each year. But there is the possibility that, you know, you might get approved, say, for a $1 million facility and you might end up only needing to use. 800,000 of it and so that means you know you're not paying interest typically on that 200,000 that you didn't use.
0: Okay got it so I mean you brought about Charm Impact as a as an example of a platform which really does low ticket investments or low ticket crowd lending Uh, and I'm so happy because you know Charm Impact uh, came on our podcast uh, a week back actually.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, But you also said that you know many of the big platforms are really not being able to support local entrepreneurs. Is it only because their the transaction sizes are high, or are there any other reasons?
1: I think it's it's a number of reasons. First is you know they have capital requirements, and so there's if there's already this trend um, in the sector before the entry of the crowd lending platforms where there is such a concentration of capital, Within the top 10 companies. I think, you know, when a crowd lender is doing due diligence on the companies, they're going to look to companies that have already attracted capital because that to them reduces risk. So I think part of it is just the crowd lending platforms reflecting the wider trends within the sector. The other part of it, I think, is that, you know, many of these platforms are based in Europe. They're not run by African entrepreneurs. There's one platform, the Wajenzi Fund that I mentioned in the Netherlands that actually has an African founder. But so many of these platforms are, you know, they're based in Europe. Um, And even their origination and due diligence teams are often based in Europe. And so I think that, you know, that creates a bit of a, um, a distortion where, you're just, well, you're just totally missing the opportunity. Um, You don't have the connections on the ground to really become embedded in the local entrepreneurial ecosystem. So you can, you know, have more companies in your pipeline and, and through the origination process. But the other part of it too is that you miss out, I think, on so much of that sort of local knowledge that is an, an important part of the due diligence process, that you're not able to you know, leverage the knowledge of people that have been working with these companies for several years and sort of know the ins and outs of the sector in that country um, and also the ins and outs of the particular you know entrepreneurs or the borrowers or investees and so I think you know it's the same thing we see with some of the impact funds is that if you're sort of based in Europe um, you might have you know a very western-centric view during the due diligence process and then you're also not exposed to a wider range of companies Um, to, you know, within your pipeline?
0: So we're going to talk about, you know, a crowdfunding platform, which is not based in Africa, does not have any local connects and figure out. We'll discuss how uh, maybe they can be supported to do investments in local entrepreneurs. But before that, we do have two examples that we have Tom Impact and we have this Netherlands based company, which is catering to local entrepreneurs. I mean, you've worked in Nairobi and Kampala, you know, if you were talking to uh, local entrepreneurs in Africa today, you know, how do you say they should prepare to launch themselves in at least these two platforms?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I think part of it is, you know, is knowing the market, knowing the players, um, knowing the different investors, what they're looking for, what it what's their ticket size, Um, you know, how many years of operation do they need before they'll even start looking at you. And what we generally see um, with many of the companies is that, you know, it takes a good 12 months of just sort of having a relationship um, before the lender or investor um, will invest in the company. So I think, you know, focusing on on building the relationships and understanding the market and where you know the different players fit is super important the other part of it is is making sure that you know the record keeping system your financials your tracking of portfolio health and metrics is really robust so you know i think at an absolute minimum lenders are probably looking at at least 24 months track record. That could be further complicated, I think, because of um, the pandemic. So I think it's really important that, you know, particularly if I guess you're having to work with um, non-African investors, if they, they might not understand the market. So I think as much as you can tell your investors about your customers, their ability to repay, If you've had to, you know, for example, during COVID, if you've had to restructure payments, you know, like, can you demonstrate um, that you've tried different approaches and that approach A didn't work, but approach B was really effective. So I think data, you know, they're really interested in data and, you know, having having, I guess, your back-end system um, be you know open and accessible to them so they can really do the analysis of your customer base um, because that you know is part of where the value of the company comes from. And so I think building up all those systems, even if you feel you know you're not quite ready to raise debt or equity, I would be building up those systems from get-go basically. The other part of this is using all types of capital that are available to you. Like many investors, they will look for, you know, particular ratios um, around, you know, how much money have you raised from other sources. So if it's grants, um, you know, making sure that you you have the relationships with grant providers and understanding, again, what they're looking for and trying to, you know, get grants, um, which will increase the likelihood that you can borrow more. And at the same time, sometimes I speak to companies that, you know, then they're sort of, I guess, put off by the small ticket sizes of some of the loans. But I do think something we underestimate is, the importance of just building a track record with a lender. So I would be thinking, you know, if I was an entrepreneur running one of these companies, you know, is it worth me taking on a $20,000 loan so that I can demonstrate that I've taken on debt and I've repaid debt? And then maybe next time I get a $40,000 loan. And I think just building that track record really puts you in a really strong position when you, you know, begin discussions with you know, potential lenders or investors down the track.
0: Very interesting. And then the flip side of the question is how should incubators, because there are lots of incubators in Africa today, uh, including Kenya Climate Innovation Center with whom you have been in close touch with, you know, how should they be preparing their entrepreneurs to take advantage of this crowdfunding trend?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think understanding the market is crucial. Like I brought up that example earlier about Waka Waka and the success that, you know, Waka Waka and the company Gravity Light saw. And some of these, you know, more donor led initiatives, they sort of pick up on that and they see, oh, wow, well, look at this company. It's raised a million dollars. We can now do that here in this environment. And I think, you know, this is, actually been published, so I'm sure they wouldn't mind sharing, but Kenya Climate Innovation Centre a couple of years ago ran a sort of competition within the centre where they hired outside consultants to select, I think it was about five or six companies, um, to raise funds on Indiegogo. And many of the companies, I think, maybe, you know, had overestimated what they could raise on these platforms and the donors, I think, you know, jumped in too early without understanding the market. And if you analyze the data from different campaigns, you can see that, like I mentioned before, like these are really just a way to formalize a family and friends round. And so if you're using Indiegogo, say, and at that time, the only way to transact on Indiegogo is with, you know, a MasterCard or a Visa card, And if that's a Kenyan company trying to raise money and all of their network is in Kenya and uses M-Pesa, it's just completely wrong product market fit. And so I think, you know, like really understanding the market and not just thinking, oh, crowdfunding, that looks cool or sexy or whatever, let's do that think, you know, spend the time researching and understanding what's going on on the ground. And then if you still want to do something, um, make sure, you know, it's it's the right fit. There are other platforms in Kenya. There's one that we work with called Mchanga and they use Mpesa. I think also, you know, PayPal and Visa and other, you know, payment mechanisms. But It's, you know, fit for the market where your network is. And that's, you know, I think really one of the big takeaways is the incubators not being superficial about things, you know, like really understanding what's going on, getting their hands dirty and building something that's based on evidence and not something that just looks cool.
0: Absolutely. So I'm glad that you brought up this issue about incubators really getting... Uh, deep into this uh, project but one thing I have noticed about incubators in Kenya is that you know their engagement with companies are like six months to a year and they're very specific you know they help them develop something or they give them a grant and then they're out do you think you know with the crowdfunding they need to be with the companies for a longer time
1: yeah I mean I think that just speaks to probably one of the wider issues it's not just about crowdfunding but it's about incubators understanding their incubatees over the long term and really matching their support um, across the company life cycle so ideally i think an incubator should be able to work with a company that you know has a few months um, of operating history but likewise has you know five six years of operating history So I think it's really important to have the technical assistance in place across that life cycle. Um, But likewise, it's really important that they have the access to finance. So I think the key thing for incubators is that they need to understand their companies and and let's remember these companies are across many different products and business models. And so they need to understand those nuances Within the company life cycle, that could be, you know, zero to sort of seven years plus. And so I think these incubator programs, you know, rather than just being like a launch pad or something that, you know, sounds great, but it doesn't really, you know, other than like a quick upskill for the entrepreneur, it doesn't really allow an entrepreneur to like grow and, and cultivate their business. So I think that these incubators, while you know they might run like a launch pad type accelerator within the incubation program, they should be really thinking about a minimum of a three to five year time horizon. And they need to, you know, obviously provide the technical assistance across that life cycle, but also play you know the matchmaking game um across that time so you know early on perhaps it's grants um, maybe then it's concessional capital and 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 incubators could be thinking you know how might we work with some of these funders that are serving early stage companies um, How could we work with them to reduce the risk to the lender? So, you know, they could create a sort of blended financing instrument where the incubator, the incubator provides, um, you know, some sort of subordinated capital or um, grant um, alongside the debt. And this means, you know, that there's increased access to capital. But like I was mentioning before, it's also important for the companies. To demonstrate, you know, we haven't just had grants, we've had loans, and we've paid them back. So I think it's, you know, really important for these incubators to understand what's going on for the companies at year one, year two, year three, not just this jump from, you know, really small grants in the beginning to, you know, a bank loan. Um, we need to understand what happens in between that process and how we can be leveraging public funds to support access to finance um, from really early on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but there are also, and you brought this up as well, you know, the user. Of- uh, public money, but there are also foundations, private sector foundations and public donor agencies who are thinking, uh, the issue about local entrepreneurs in Africa not having the same access to capital. How should they be thinking about crowdfunding to solve the problem?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's really exciting. I think that crowdfunding is now part of their agenda, because I know like when we started out in 2015, crowdfunding wasn't on the radar. Um, and I think now that it makes up about 10% um, of all funds raised, there is increasing attention, which is really wonderful. But I guess it also comes back to this thing of, do they really understand the market or have they just heard that crowdfunding is growing so they're doing something in crowdfunding? And again, That can sometimes mean that rather than it being like a market-led initiative where there's a really deep understanding of the market and the nuances within the market, within the business models, within the different jurisdictions, it can sometimes be a bit of a a donor-led initiative. And that means particularly where the donors, um, you know, lay out the design of the intervention before understanding the market, um, that it's almost like destined to fail. So one of the ways um, I've seen that is that, you know, a lot of donors talk about what's referred to as match funding, where a donor financing alongside the crowd investor. So if a crowd investor um, invests, say, you know, 500,000 pounds, euros on the platform, the institutional funder or, you know, the foundation or DFI would typically put in, let's say, somewhere between 20% and 50% of the campaign target. But what this ignores is that many of the platforms, particularly those European platforms I was discussing earlier, um, those like investment style platforms, many of them have very high investor demand and actually investor demand far outstrips the supply on the platform. You know, some of these platforms actually are getting like complaints from their investors saying there's not enough campaigns, you know, or they the investor has already invested In a campaign, the money has returned to their wallet on the platform and they want to reinvest in a campaign and they just can't because the volume is just not there. So the danger with a donor, if they come in, you know, without an understanding of all of these these market factors and they say, oh, we just want to do match funding they're essentially crowding out investors. Um, So it's really important to understand the platforms. I think match funding can be really helpful for some of these, you know, smaller transactions, where particularly for platforms that are just launching, you know, if they've only got within their first year of operation, I think match funding can be really important. But for some of these you know, larger ticket size deals on the more mature European platforms, match funding is not the right answer. So I'd really, you know, urge donors to understand um, the market and the different types of platforms and what's actually needed to increase access to finance. One of the other things here too is... How can donors, how can foundations de risk the investment products? So, you know, they can look at what do borrowers need in a financial product? Um, And then, you know, what are the investors looking for? And remembering that these investors are just sort of everyday people. Um, Typically, you know, the platforms we're talking about, they generally live in Europe or the UK. Well, the UK is part of Europe still. (laughs) And so, There's, you know, different ways that donors could support the innovation of products. And we've seen that on some platforms where they look at, you know, different structures of guarantees, um, taking a subordinated debt position. But one of the big things here, which we haven't spoken too much about, but you know, let's remember that the receivables or the revenues of the companies are typically in local currency, um, whereas these platforms are and most investors are lending in euro, sterling or USD.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, where foundation capital can really help is the point that you brought up. So the receivables of the company, or the borrower in this case, is always in local currency Kenyan like shillings, for instance. And uh, whereas, you know, if you have the borrowing in hard currency, then you need hedge. And I think foundation capital can really help in absorbing this hedging costs. Uh, Have you seen anything like that already?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the platforms are looking at this. I know of one platform that has offered unhedged local currency um, loans where essentially the investors take all of the, the forex risk. But more recently, we actually have a platform that we've worked with through the Crowd Power program, where they are setting up a local currency hedging facility just as a pilot first with TCX Fund. And this will be for a borrower initially in West Africa. And we actually hope to launch that campaign in the next month or two, which is super exciting. Um, and in that way, I think crowdfunding is is kind of, you know, also setting an example um, of the types of product innovation that is possible within the sector, not just for crowd lending platforms or crowdfunding platforms, um, but for other investors as well. The other thing we've seen is that one of our partners is trialing. You know, I think that there's definitely a tendency, I think, amongst these platforms to sort of do something small and test multiple um, multiple options before scaling up. So another platform that we work with, they're trialing three different structures um, for hedging. So they'll probably try that with, you know, say three different borrowers and they'll take a look at, you know, what are the different um, outcomes? What are the different costs associated with that? And how might they match the donors um with these different products like for example if it's um like a reserve fund that absorbs part of the um fx risk or if it's you know a guarantee maybe one donor um or guarantee provider is more interested in, on the guarantee side so i think it's you know that kind of a bit of this matchmaking process and product innovation together um, that creates these you know better outcomes and more informed products um, and not just you know jumping onto one solution before trialing you know three or four to see which one is actually the best option here
0: and that is the correct entrepreneurial way of doing things experimenting learning and then scaling any other tips of what foundations should be doing or not doing?
1: So I think that they really need to know the market inside out. Um, It's obviously, you know, the businesses, the crowd lending platforms, um, but also some of the regulatory things. I've seen, you know, um, certain call for proposals go out and they talk about particular markets like Ethiopia, for example, um, where it's actually really difficult for crowd lending platforms to operate so i think you know really understanding the different jurisdictions and not just trying to do something because that's um a donor's mandated country like they need to also understand whether it's a fit for them and then you know the other thing i think is really supporting platforms Um, platforms often know the ins the ins and outs of the different countries so they should be like working really closely with the platforms and seeing you know what can they do to support say the creation of a special purpose vehicle or other operations in countries um in countries in sub-saharan africa so they can actually create more access to finance um so i think you know really thinking outside of the square of match funding and the other thing too that's an important point and i think you know, because of COVID, it's actually, you know, one of the silver linings of COVID. I I think it's really highlighted the importance of these platforms, these initiatives um, not being run from Europe. I mean, they need to be run on the ground and they need to have staff and people on the ground to not only understand the ecosystem, but, you know, we're in a situation now with COVID where people can't travel. And so that really, you know, would create like a big disadvantage for companies that are based in Europe and don't have operations on the ground. So I would really be thinking about, you know, how can you build the, the pipeline generation, origination, due diligence teams on the ground um, so that you can ensure the continuity of operations um, when you have you know, shocks like we've had over the last year or so.
0: I think, thank you very much, Davinia, for helping us understand the entire gamut of, of crowdfunding. And I'm really excited that this will solve some of the problems, though I recognize that it's still very much concentrated towards the larger companies, but you know, it will solve some of the African problems. So one final question, I know you have been in investment banking, you talked about this earlier, and then you've been now in crowdfunding uh, and in uh, emerging economies. Now you're going back to business school in Oxford, you know, when you come back, how do you expect the world of impact investing to change?
1: (laughs) It's a big question. Well, so I think that, you know, there's definitely a realization within, you know, different economies, governments, um, and the private sector that people are becoming, you know, much more conscious about where their money is going. And that can be, you know, like the products in your home, what you wear, but it's also extending now into financial products. And I think, you know, this is something that we've seen with crowdfunding is, you know, crowdfunding is really one of the only ways that retail investors um, can get access to these types of uh, investment. So I think, you know, it's such a huge opportunity that is currently untapped. And, you know, the other, you know, part of this is that by the end of this decade one in five consumers are going to be based in Africa and about half of them are going to be affluent or middle class and so there's obviously you know this huge opportunity there and it's so important now that we're focused on building those entrepreneurial ecosystems and you know understanding the market so that it's african companies that are serving these markets as they grow which means that you know, the wealth stays within Africa rather than it being, you know, outside companies coming in. So I think that, you know, if we're really focused on not just for the issue of energy access, but how to build entrepreneurial ecosystems and create access to finance and services like technical type services um, and technical expertise within these companies, that's just going to put, I think, the continent in a much better position to make sure that the wealth stays there so that it can be used to support things like you know improved infrastructure healthcare, education and, and generally just creating um, exciting employment opportunities
0: well i really hope that you can come back from business school in oxford and build a great company in africa which will help as you say the wealth to be in africa and uh, put africa on a sustainable development path With that, thank you very much.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.